I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Last week, our guest, Sarah Wells, told us about how she teaches people to use their passion to solve problems. And today's guest is going to show you how he used his passion to grow a business and bring together a community. Brad White became a professional cyclist at the age of 25 after being a collegiate swimmer and triathlete. In our conversation, we talk about learning the balance between working hard and resting, how to play the game during races, and how he defines success. Brad tells us about his most memorable moment from his time as a pro racer, and you might be surprised by his answer. From how he got the nickname Captain America to how racing stupid made him stronger, smarter, and built confidence, well, we cover it all in this episode. If you're enjoying the Pursuit of Gold podcast, make sure you go hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and give us a five-star rating and review. And if you're loving this show, make sure you're sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Brad White, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now I want to ask you how you found your way into the world of cycling. Cause I know some people find their sport when they're like three years old and some people find it when they're like 30. So how did you find cycling? Cycling is kind of an odd sport here in the U.S. You know, if you look at it in Europe and some other cultures, it's people do start racing bikes at a younger age. I was very unique in the cycling world because I really didn't start racing bikes till after college. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, I was more into ball sports like soccer. I um, did swim team, played basketball, but my family rode bikes. It was a big part of our family, you know, what we did. So uh, riding bikes was always a part of that. And I love mountain biking and just kind of found myself really enjoying that. Did some triathlon. Triathlon was a big part of of that as well. But yeah, after college, did a couple bike races. My wife and I moved out to Colorado. I was a school teacher, started racing bikes out there in the Denver area, which is a little bit more well known. I started realizing, whoa, people make make a living doing this this thing, <laughs> you know, that I that I love. So yeah, one thing led to another, and next day I knew it, I was not teaching anymore and I was racing. <laughs> okay, so how does that kind of happen? I mean, you're 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 in Colorado, which is gorgeous, and I think everybody loves to be outside in Colorado. Um, but you're you're doing bike races, but like, how do you go from just having fun in bike races to actually becoming a professional? Because that's that's a pretty big deal. I'm I'm guessing that's not an easy thing to do because there are so many really good cyclists. Yeah, I, I really don't e- didn't even know what the categories of racing were. There was like Cat 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, Pro 1, 2. Then there was like people who had pro contracts and were getting paid to do it. So it just kind of all happened really fast <laughs> with me. And a little bit of it was a leap of faith to just kind of dive into it like that. But also, like anything, it's like the people that you surround yourself with kind of brings that about, you know, having... You know, my wife was super supportive. I was married at the at the time. And then a couple of like people I was riding with and or getting connected with were super supportive and then connecting me with the right people. And then, you know, it's letting your legs do the talking in some cases and results showed. So 
Wow. So how quickly did you kind of get into it, move up the ranks and become professional? Like, what is that whole transition like? So I, th- I think it was, yeah, I mean, there was a hill climb in the Denver area up Mount Evan or Mount um, Lookout Mountain outside of Golden and uh, raced up that as like a cat five or something, cat four. And then throughout that summer, went all the way through the ranks. The next year was a cat two. But then within a year, I was in Europe racing on some team out of the Netherlands and then going to Spain and China, which allowed me to do the U.S. Pro Championships, which then all the pro teams are there. And I was able to be recognized by a couple of the domestic pro teams. And ultimately, I wanted to be here in the U.S. a bit because at that point I was married. My wife had a job here. We, you know, this was our home. But really, the racing was the big racing is in Europe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we all have heard of the tour to France and stuff like that's the, obviously the one that sticks out, but I know there's a bunch of them. Um, well, let me, a few weeks ago, we spoke with a cyclist, Gideon Massey. Um, he was in episode 41, but he does track cycling in the velodrome. Um, but you're, you know, doing, like you said, the big tours and the road races, which is a totally different beast. So kind of explain to me how that works, because I know there's a big team aspect, but then there's some individual aspect too. So how does that kind of ebb and flow? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, the sport of cycling is unique. I mean, you can look at it a little bit like track and field, like, there's or running, you know, you've got the hundred meter, 200 meter, you've got the mile, you got the, you know, there's different events. And just because you're a runner or just because you're a cyclist doesn't mean you're good at all of them, you know? So track is very specific. There's a lot of strategy involved on the, on the track, you know, road racing, there are going to be certain stages and races that, that suit a certain type of rider, whether it's hilly or whether it has a sprint finish or has a, a different terrain. And then something in the U.S. that is quite popular is is our criteriums, which are something totally different. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the sport is different, but it's so cool because you have so many different types of people in the sport. Our team is pretty good at criteriums here in the U.S., which a criterium is pretty much a, is placed in a city center. It's less than a mile around, sometimes just a kilometer around. And there's usually six to eight corners. So it's fast. There's a lot of corners and it's a 90 minute race. Now, after let's say 60 minutes, then all of a sudden it goes down. They kind of know how fast the laps you're doing. Then it clicks down to how many laps to go. So you are racing to a finish line, but the team aspect is far more than what I ever imagined it would be. But when I got into the sport, it's really a really a cool uh, way of looking at a sport, even though it's very individual. So, well, take me take me through that a little more because I mean, when you become professional, like, is it? Cause I, I mean, I, I'm in a totally different sport, and every sport's so different. But like, you get picked up for a team, not just getting a sponsor, right? Is that kind of how it is? So you are with that team for a while. It is. So how how the team works is yeah, there's a there's a team owner uh, who has a manager that basically there's a budget and they're like, okay, here's our budget. We have to hire riders. So they have to go out and hire some different riders. So a team is comprised of maybe a few sprinters, some good climbers. You need some good domestiques. A domestique is basically a helper, someone who uh, helps those guys. So you're basically putting together a team that's going to work well together for winning different stages or different types of things. So 
it's really dynamic in terms of how you create a team. But like anything, you can put all the best riders together or all the best soccer players together, but it doesn't mean they're going to win, you know, so they have to be able to work together as a team. So in the sport of cycling, you know, you'll see it in, you know, the Tour de France or in criteriums where a whole team goes to the front of a race and is controlling the race. So you've got maybe if there's six riders on the front, all from one team, there's maybe two or three riders that are rotating at the front, breaking the wind. And then you've got, you know, three or four riders sitting on saving their energy for the end. Yeah. So it is very much like a a team sport that we're more familiar with where everybody has their specific role to play, huh? They do have a very specific role to play. And it's really important that you know your role, you can execute your, uh, your job, but also that you show up ready. So it's very individual in the fact that, you know, we're not a team that gets together every day of the week to train together. You know, that happens sometimes at like a training camp, but a lot of us, you know, we want to go home. We want to go to be with our families and, or where we, we are not be on the road all the time. So you have to have a lot of discipline because there's no one necessarily telling you to train or to do what you need to do to be ready, but you don't want to let your teammates down. So when you show up, you want to be able to show up to the race, you know, prepared to help the team and not let them down. You know, the worst thing would be is you can't execute your role and the team loses or and and could have won, you know. So is that hard? Like to, I mean, do you guys kind of have a game plan? Like, hey, we're all going to go back home to our own homes, but we're going to do X, Y, and Z to prepare for this next race? Or is it kind of like you figure out what you need to do and you go do it? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely tell me a lot of, I think a lot of the athletes are self-motivated and, and are going to do that. Um, obviously, there's things that we need to work on and people kind of know what they need to work on. A lot of people have their own individual coach that are helping them prepare for uh, a certain event. You know, some writers are going to peak for other events and other writers will peak for for others. So before a race, we definitely are coming up with a plan, but there could be a hundred different scenarios that happen. So you kind of have a general idea, but I end up racing on the same team for a long time. So we all got to know each other very well. And that was a lot of our success was, was in that, that we didn't have to talk a lot to each other. We just kind of knew each other, knew each other, everyone knew what to do. And we were able to kind of, you know, go through the race and uh, respond and not have to communicate a lot. That, that was a, a huge advantage for us being together longer. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Is that, is that unusual? It is a little bit, but it's just like, I was going to say like in, in the workplace and I, I just compare sport to like a lot of different things, you know, you have different types of riders and different types of uh, people in the workplace and they're all going to bring something different to the table, you know, but um, we had a really good group of guys and we stayed together. Some were really serious and took, took the sport uh, a little bit more serious than others. Some um, were thinkers and you know, like to be more of like a leader or a captain in that sense. And then others were just kind of like, you know, to joke around and have fun. And it was just a really good balance because, you know, before a race, a lot of nerves are going, you know, you're nervous, you're, you know, you're thinking a lot about strategy and different things, but it's kind of nice to have someone on the team that will crack a joke when things are kind of tense before an event, you know, to kind of lighten the mood. 
So, so w- which one of those personalities are you? <laughs> you know, I was, kind of, I don't, I just kind of floated in the middle a little bit. Um, I just kind of took, set back and took it a little bit. I, I was probably a little bit more a leader by the way I just acted more than some of the words, but yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, okay. So I'm a platform diver and when we go to different pools to compete, like even though every pool looks a little different, feels a little different, all the platforms I compete from are exactly 10 meters above the water. But when you go to races, the distances vary, the courses vary, the elevations vary, the difficulties vary. Like, So I want to know, how do you prepare for your races? Not just physically. I want to hear physically, but also mentally. Yeah, f- physically, you're kind of, I mean, everyone has their, their strengths in, in a race. Like, And it depends how you train 100%. Because when I lived in Colorado, I could climb pretty well. I moved to Michigan, Southern Michigan, where it's pretty flat. And I hated hitting climb during a race (laughs) after I moved back here. I just couldn't train for it. So, I mean, definitely your training will prepare you for a specific race. And typically we get what they call a race race Bible before a race. And it kind of gives you a little bit more of like the elevation, the maps and, and stuff. So you kind of know how to prepare in that sense. Oh, cool. Yeah. And the preparation for each course is, is going to be different, but kind of the same. And then you're just going to react differently. You're going to know, okay, especially in a stage race, you know, if I'm not the, they call the GC rider, the person going for the overall time, like uh, the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, if I'm not that rider, I'm going to look at the stage profiles and be like, oh, this, this stage may suit me better. You know, the GC may be decided, maybe a breakaway will go up the road and they won't, they'll just let it go this would be a good finish for me. I may try and focus on, you know, stage four. And so on stage three, if I get dropped on the climb, I'm probably going to take it kind of easy with a group. I mean, we're going to make it to the finish within like a time cut, but I'm going to kind of take it a little easier to the finish that day to make sure my legs are good for the next day. So you can kind of play games like that within a stage race. And you'll see that in the, in the Tour de France, especially the longer races. Because the overall time is what matters to some riders, but then to other riders, winning a stage is a big deal. But then, yeah, mental preparation is tough. I mean, the mental side of, of sport is fascinating because it's, it's such a big part of, of the sport. Because, oh, yeah. I mean, if you don't believe in yourself, because, I mean, you know you're going to suffer. You know you're going to hurt. Right. You know that's coming and you just – Something I would always think in my head is like, man, I am suffering. I know everyone else here is suffering. If I can just suffer this that little bit longer, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they may give up. And sometimes that would happen. You know, you're going up a climb and you're going, you're going, going. You're thinking, man, I cannot keep this pace up anymore, but just keep it going a little longer. Next thing you know, it, you see another guy, just he gives up, you know. So that was always really uh, motivating for me. But I think – one of the biggest motivators for me was just, yeah, not wanting to let down my, my team, uh, my fans, you know, my bigger, my biggest supporters, you know, my family, uh, and friends here. So, yeah. Well, I kind of like how you put that. It reminded me of, um, do you know the, the have you heard of the runner, Steve Prefontaine mm-hmm. kind of legendary? Well, he, and he was all about the guts race. Like just, you got to outwill everyone outlast everyone. Like that's kind of what that reminded me of a little bit. I, yeah. I, I kind of love that, <laughs> that mindset. And it can be. I mean, some some races are like that. But then some races, it drove me crazy when I first started because the strongest guy didn't always win. You know, like people would, would use another rider 
uh, who is stronger and wins. So like, for example, you know, I'm in a breakaway, let's say of 10 guys. So we're up the road ahead of everyone and I'm just feeling good. So I'm riding really hard. Well, these other guys are letting me ride hard, you know, because <laughs> they're like, perfect. This guy's great. And, you know, you get near the end, next thing you know, your legs are starting to feel heavy and they're, they're feeling good. So you were maybe the strongest rider in the group, but now you're not. So you have to tactically be a smart rider, even though, you know, I was always, yeah, that, you know, I'm just give it my all and go as hard as I can. But you at some point have to learn how to tactically make the right move at the right time. Yeah. And I like, I mean, it's very much like a quote I saw in, in an article um, about you where you said the sport's a bit like chess. You have to be smart. Just like you were saying, I've, I've learned how to play the game using the, of using the other riders and conserving energy and waiting for opportunities. Um, and that has to come with experience because you said this, um, Gideon said that about the velodrome too. Apollo Ono said that when we were talking about short track speed skating and the insanity of that event, like how long did it take you to kind of develop that patience and that experience? Cause I, I would imagine and maybe it's because I've always been an individual athlete but like it'd be really hard for me to hold back and not to be doing what I thought I was capable of doing so I yeah how long does that take you to kind of gain that wisdom yeah. and experience it took me way too long it was probably painful to watch like my family <laughs> and friends it's probably painful to watch me not make you know be patient enough at the right moments you know um, you just get caught up in the moment of of racing, and you get caught up in the moment of the event. But boy, when when you and you're gonna you're going to you know not always do it right every time. But boy, when you do, it feels good. Mm-hmm. You know when you when you get it right. But patience is a huge part of of I think all sports. I mean, cycling definitely. When you watch a finish, you know a sprinter really shouldn't start sprinting in a sprint finish of a of a road race until like 200, 250 meters to go, you know? So like in the last five kilometers or even one kilometer, I mean, it's going fast and it's hard to even start your sprint, but you're anxious to go and you'll see somebody jump early and whether it's a last ditch effort or not, it's hard to say sometime, but that patience to, for that right moment. And you're talking after, you know, 200 kilometers or 120 miles, you're talking, wait until the last 200 meters come on you know that's, <laughs> that's so hard that's a lot of patience so uh, yeah. yeah well okay i want to know what was your most memorable race or even just moment from a race good or bad like what really stands out to you when you look back at your career i mean i think most of it is just the, the guys i raced with you know i mean that we had such good time i mean we spent so much time together on the road and we won so many criteriums and races. It was, I can't remember it. One year we won like 50 out of 56 races or something ridiculous. It was, we were just riding so well together all the time, having fun on and off the bike and just really good memories of racing. You know, all, some bad uh, stuff sticks out, you know, always of crashes. Uh, I remember breaking uh, some ribs in China and that's never fun. Um, but gosh, uh, when I won a stage in, in the tour of Langkawi in Malaysia, that was a special uh, a moment there. Just, you know, it came close a couple of times before that, but I mean, it was just a nice win, you know, to be able to throw your hands in, in the air coming across the line first is just a really, really good feeling. Yeah. I love that. Well, and I like how you talk about some of your, like the first thing that you said is just 
being with the guys and just racing and being in that environment. Like, do you think it was because you had a certain attitude or expectation or thought process of how things were going to go beforehand? Or how, how do you think you enjoyed it so much? Because I mean, I know some athletes that are like that. I'm very much like that. I love what I do. I really enjoy it. But then I know a lot of athletes that hate it. They retire from their sport and they hate it and they never want to be a part of it again. And so how do you, you know, I mean, I guess describe maybe your, maybe it was your attitude going in it. Maybe you were just lucky. I don't know. Like, what do you think it was that, that makes that part the most memorable for you? Yeah, I think that is a little bit of, of lucky. I think that group of guys and just how that group came together and the, the, the fun that we were able to have. I mean, all sports are tough at that level in Europe, some of the bigger teams in Europe. And so we spent a lot of time in Europe racing as well. We did race against a lot of the riders that race in the Tour de France. We did big races that, you know, the Tour de France is a lot of what people know, but like the, the Perry Roubaix, the cobbled stone classic, you know, we raced in that race and some big events. And I think the U S just because the sport maybe wasn't as much of a sport known like it is in Europe um, was a little bit more loose. So we had a little bit more fun and at these races, everyone eats at, you know, so there's a hotel that most of the racers are staying at. And then there's maybe, you know, maybe three hotels in the area. Most of the racers are staying at, and we're all eating buffet at the races, probably a lot like, you know, at the Olympics or something, but you can imagine, you know, everyone sits with their team, you know, that's, re- that's really good. And, you know, you can imagine a group of guys sitting there laughing, having a good time, you know, opposed to a lot of the other teams just sitting there eating their food in silence, you know, but we also didn't have the language barrier. So that's what you run into in some of these teams is, you know, it's a, it's a Italian team, but they have, you know, Russians, they have uh, English speaking people on their team. So it's just hard to communicate sometime on these other teams. And that makes it difficult. But most of the people, if they came to our team, we had, you know, guys from Germany, Italy, the Netherlands on our team. And it was just kind of a requirement to know English. But and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just kind of because they want the people to feel part of the team, right. you know, and, and be able to communicate. But, well, now I think I have an idea of the answer to the next question, but I'm going to ask it. So when you were on the United Healthcare Pro Cycling Team, you got the, the nickname Captain America. Like, I, I need to know where that nickname came from. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just because I, I maybe just seemed like an all-American person. I honestly hadn't seen like uh, Avengers or whatever and Captain America. I didn't know anything about it, but I think that they ju- I just reminded them of <laughs> that character and just was like, oh, yeah, you're just like exactly what we think of when we think of American. <laughs> and so it kind of came about about through that. So, That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Well, I, I have another question here. So kind of on like how you train. So a lot of people say, you know, play to your strengths, like strengthen your strengths. And other people say, take your weaknesses and turn those into your strengths. Like when you try to create a training program and when you're trying to improve, like how do you focus your training? Because especially because I mean, even if you had an individual coach, a, a lot of what you do is probably done on your own, I'm assuming. Yeah, a lot of it is. And I was maybe a little bit more unorthodox because I really didn't have much of a coach, but I kind of would go off of what I felt like I needed. It took me a while to learn to not train so much. So I think a lot of athletes will go into, I got to work harder. I got to work harder. I got to train more. I got to train more. Right. And 
I learned it. I swam in college and it would bug me sometimes because I would train so hard and I know I was faster than some of these guys, but sometimes they'd beat me at these meets and I'd be like, what, the, what is going on? Like, <laughs> and I was just tired and it bugged me because these guys were kind of, I want to say lazy in practice when really they were probably doing what the coach told them. And I was trying to do more than what the coach was telling us to do, thinking it'd make me faster. So I think learning to um, balance working hard with rest was something that really helped me take my you know performance at races to the next level. So if I had a hard training uh, plan for the day and I went out, my legs felt like garbage, uh, I took an easy day. And then the next day I would do my hard effort, my hard uh, training. So, I mean, there's certain days you have to push through feeling kind of bad, but I think there's definitely something about l- even with a training plan, listening to your body and being able to react to what your body is dealing with and get the most out of your training. Oh, that's so good. Listening to your body. And that's, that's a hard thing, especially when you're younger, because you're just figuring out your body, but, but learning how to find those cues. And my, I was really lucky because my coach was always pretty good at that. Like he'd have a plan, kind of like what you talked about. He'd have a game plan, but he'd always kind of assess how we were feeling, like not even just physically, but like mentally and emotionally and all those kind of things. And then kind of tweak it as, as needed. So that was, that's really smart. You got to listen to your body and your mind and all those things. Um, yeah. I mean, if you have a heart, if you're trying to do some hard intervals when, day. And what that does is brings you to that next level of being able to really dig deep, but your body's not ready to dig deep, whether it's mentally or physically, it's it's not really doing what you've intended the workout to do. Exactly. Well, when I was looking up your results, because you know, a proper podcast host has to stalk her uh, vis- her guests. Um, well, I discovered something kind of cool. Along with your top finishes, I found these... Um, different awards listed. And one of them was most courageous rider on stage three on the tour of California. And one was most aggressive rider on stage one of the USA pro cycling challenge. Like did something specific happen on those rides to give you that kind of distinguished honor? Yeah. So those are something that are kind of put out there at different stage races. You know, they have the sprint Jersey. A lot of times you'll see it as a green Jersey. The yellow Jersey is the leader's Jersey. And then you've got the polka dot Jersey. Uh, which is like the best climber. And there's basically points at the top of each hill that gets accumulated. And then each day they'll um, award a most aggressive rider, most courageous rider. And it's kind of a, you know, a fan favorite or a, um, you know, someone who's uh, a panel of people that are, that are doing that. But a lot of time it's given to someone who's, you know, in the breakaway or pushing or, or just showing themselves a lot that day. I mean, that was always kind of my MO and, and stuff is to race hard. And I would try and get in the, the breakaway, try and get it up the road. I would attack a lot. And yeah, that's kind of where, where I got that. And I, you know, like I said, it took a long time to learn patience for me. So like attacking a lot and stuff was just part of like going and, and trying to get out there. But it, it did two things for me. It made me stronger you know, kind of racing stupid uh, made me stronger. <laughs> like um, it made me a little smarter later, but it also uh, got my name out there a little bit. You know, if I just sit in the bunch, sit in the Peloton and and just wait and wait and wait, one, you never really get recognized. Two, you're, you really don't believe that you're really a part of the race sometimes. You're not like, you're not really contributing to the race, the event and pushing it. And you feel, you feel a part of it and you feel like you're animating something. And I think that builds your confidence and 
really kind of, you know, the belief in yourself. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I would like to know when you were racing, how did you define success? Like what made you think you had a successful day or not? Yeah, I mean, a successful day for me was different probably. Yeah. And and for every, you know, athlete, it's going to be different in cycling. It's, it's, I believe, you know, very different in the sense like, you know, uh, a job well done is, hey, your role today is to bring our best climber to the bottom of the hill and make sure they haven't done any work. They haven't touched the wind and you bring them into the bottom of the hill in like, you know, the top 10 positions. And you're able to do that, you know, that's a successful day for you as a rider because that was a, a job well done. So, and then you pedal and you get last place, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, on the sheet, on the finish sheet, it looks like a very unsuccessful day for you. Right. Um, but you, you did exactly what the team needed you to do and you executed it and you had a, a good day. So that's always a hard one to, to really you know, say, I mean, obviously crossing the line first is, is a big success, but that's not going to happen every day. So, yeah, I think, you know, being able to achieve what you set out to achieve that day is a success. I love that so much because I mean, yeah, like you said, you can't win everything all the time. And if you do, I I feel like maybe you're not doing something right because you should be getting better, like improving somehow. Because I think failure or what looks like failure from the outside, not necessarily an actual failure, is this opportunity for growth. Like um, in, in my sport, I mean, we're like crazy acrobatic stuff. Like sometimes you take some bad wipeouts because you're trying to make really difficult changes. And so to the people watching, it looks terrible. Like you don't know what you're doing, but you're you're making such hard, like quick changes that will actually like catapult you, you know, in the future to like being able to do this thing for huge scores. So I totally get that. I love that having like the specific goals, specific, you know, tasks that you want to get done. And that's what makes it a success, no matter how it looks to the people watching. I think that's super important. Um, Is it different now that you're retired? Like, how would you define success now? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, Success, you mean in in uh, in sport or just in life or in, in work? Yeah, just in, in general. All, yeah, in general. Yeah, it's a tough one because you know we're constantly trying to do better. You know, I think if you if you stop trying to do better, you kind of stop stop living in a way. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, as as a father and a business owner and and stuff. You know, success kind of yeah, it kind of starts each each day a little bit new, each year uh, a little bit new, but it kind of goes the same. You know, you're trying to accomplish your goals. I think I'm I'm a big goal setter, so setting goals for for yourself, whether it's for the day, the week, the year, and and small goals are good because it's always good to to have a win, (laughs) have a win, and check that off. So yeah, are do you write down your goals? I really don't write them down much. They're kind of in my head, but I think I've never been much in writing and journaling. I did for a little while and I, I looked at that not long ago. It's kind of funny, fun to, <laughs> to look back and, and read, but yeah. That's cool. Now with phones and everything, I sh- should really get better at like, just, you always have your phone with right, you. Break out your pull. notes app or something. <laughs> oh, my notes app is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Well, okay. What was the transition out of professional cycling like? I mean, 
you didn't totally go. I mean, you're still kind of involved, I think. But did you like, was there just a time you decided, okay, it's time to move on? Or like, how does that work? Because a lot of people that we have listening ask about transitioning out of sport because sometimes it's really difficult. Yeah. Transitioning out of sport is really hard. I was fortunate that I did go to uh, school and have a teaching degree. I really wasn't sure I wanted to go back into teaching, especially after gaining all this, you know, experience and knowledge riding bikes. So, um, you know, I, I ended up kind of always liking being around bike shops when I was a kid and, and bikes and people and, and for a lot of people, bike shops are kind of someone's third place, you know, they have, it's kind of unique. So, I mean, people have their, either their work or their school, they have their home and then they usually have a third place, whether it's their hangout, church, place, their right? church, yeah. yeah, their church, their group here, there. Well, for some people, the bike shop, they like to just go hang out and, you know, see what's new and chat to the mechanics and, you know, chat to the staff. And so that was always kind of fun for me. And then, yeah, I mean, a shop, you know, was in a, in a transitional period in, in the town that we lived in. And I approached them and they were like, we'd love to, you know, yeah, we we're thinking about selling the next couple of years. And, so yeah, next thing I knew it, I was finding a way to pull the money together to get the bike shop. And we ended up buying the bike shop, my wife and I, and then I raced for another three years. Like you were still pro at the time? Still pro at the time. Okay. Yeah. So with the bike shop, was it just kind of this fun thing where you like kind of knowing at some point I'm going to retire and this is something to do after? Yeah. Knowing something to do after. Cool. Yeah. And just was so blessed with an amazing staff. You know, obviously, you know, my wife took a lot on and has always been a, a huge support, you know, both in my career and anything I've done, which is huge for my success. But to be able to have an awesome staff and to kind of do that while I raced was great. I mean, transitioning out of out of sport is is hard. A lot of my teammates they're all hardworking people. They all find a, find a way. And I think the biggest thing for people transitioning out of sports is you don't have to find the thing right away. Same with people graduating from college or high school or anything. Like You don't have to find the thing you're going to do the rest of your life. And that used to bug one of my teammates so much because we would go to a lot of sponsor dinners and different things. And people would always ask us, you do this for a living? And we'd be like, yeah, we do. Isn't that, isn't that cool? And they're like, well, yeah, but what are you going to do when you're done? You know, and it bothered my one teammate so much. Uh, he was an Australian and he was, he was like, well, what do you do? You know, he'd always ask the question back to him and they, they tell him, he's like, well, do you want to do that the rest of your life? And the person would look at him kind of like, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You know? So, I mean, life changes and, and careers change. And so, I feel like there's always this big pressure, like, what am I going to do when I'm done with my sport, you know, or what am I going to do when I'm done with high school or college? And, and it's always these big decisions and, and they are big decisions, but like they don't, they're not set in stone necessarily. So I don't feel like the pressure needs to be as high as, as it is sometimes. That's some, that's some really good wisdom because I, I have felt that too because I retired back in 2008, but I just couldn't get away and I came back in like 2017. But um, I, it was hard because I didn't know what to do with myself. But I, I love how you're saying and just reminding us that like the first thing you find doesn't have to be 
in cement forever. Like this is it. Like just find something and use that as a starting point. I think that's really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah. it sounds so simple and so basic, but for some it's reason, hard. yeah, it's hard to get. Yeah, it is. And coming out of college, same thing. You're like, I have to have this job. I have to have that. Like, there's just this weird pressure, and I don't know if it's just society or we put it on ourselves. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very real feeling for sure. Well, didn't your wife create something that was kind of some mom's group or something to support you guys? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So she had a group called Moms in Tow, and it was kind of connecting local moms with local businesses and just like new moms as they become moms are kind of thrown in this new world of like motherhood and they they are looking for new connections, new people, new businesses that they're shopping at because they used to not shop at places like that before. So um, it was really well a good way for people to connect. And I did another discipline of cycling called Cycle Cross, and that sponsored my Cycle Cross team. And we did that. It's still Moms and Toe is still around in, in Holland, and it's a great great way for moms to connect with the with new moms and with local businesses. So that's awesome. Yeah, someone else has that now, and she's now full time mom of three and, and, uh, helps a ton at the bike shop. And then also is huge, has a huge heart for, um, a new, uh, business that we have called Velo Kids and, uh, Velo Kids basically is just getting more kids on bikes and whether it's just fun community rides, uh, we have summer camps or we even have like a junior Velo cycling team that will do some, you know, there may be kids that are looking for a little bit more that want to do like bike races and want to, you know, push themselves a little bit. So, okay. I, I just love, I love how you guys do these things at your, your whole family. Like you get, you support each other, whatever you're doing, you find a way to make everything work together. I mean, now you're running Velo City Cycles at your, your bike shop. And, um, my friend Carolyn, who we both know was telling me that you guys have all sorts of programs to get, like you said, kids and families on bikes. Um, she said you repair bikes for homeless people. You've installed bike pumps all over town. There's community rides with free ice cream. I saw something on Instagram where you guys were doing like a tulip tour. Like, tell me about all these things that you guys are doing. Cause this is not just a bike shop. Like you guys have made it and it's not just the place to hang out. It sounds like it's so much more. So tell, tell me all the good stuff about what you guys are doing. Yeah. I mean the, the bike shop and, and I, I mean, that's one reason I wanted to get into this is, I mean, there's a lot of knowledge to share with people, but to, to get people out, I mean, the bike has done so much for me within my career, but also, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, it's connected me with people, you know, and it's amazing what I've seen it do for people, you know, so like, you know, someone going through some hard times and coming to our Tuesday night ride and connecting with people and, you know, not necessarily, you know, it's something they look forward to and are able to be a part of. So I think we're all looking for that sense of community sometime. And the bike, we're, we're outside, we're, you know, being active, we're getting exercise. Now the bike can also be a good way of just transportation too. And we see that, see that as well. So, I mean, with COVID bikes, bikes have been uh, a big hit. Uh, we're, we're definitely dealing with a big shortage of bikes and stuff now. They're oh, wow. difficult to get. Boy, do I hope, you know, this this lasts because it's just a, a fun, healthy activity for families to do. I mean, you can do it with others so well. I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, other activities sometimes like I like to trail run. I have a hard time running on pavement, <laughs> but I try and run with someone. I can't talk to them when I'm running. I can't, you know, but like on the bike, I feel like I can carry a conversation. I can catch up with someone. It's just a fun thing to do. But yeah, the programs we have are to give back to our community and to create experiences for people to use the products that we're selling them. So if someone buys a bike, they don't know what they don't know about a bike or what they need. So ourselves who have been riding bikes are able to tell them, hey, when it's, you know, how to dress for a ride, how to care for your bike, you know, whether, you know, you're pumping your tires or how to fix a flat tire or whatever it is, just educating and creating those tools for people when they buy something, how to use them and uh, ways to use them. So... Well, I, I love it. I love that you have turned your you know passion of cycling and bike riding into this amazing community wide thing. I, I just think that's so cool, and I and it's just encouraging to see you don't have to just be done with your sport and be done with your sport and never go back to it. Like you can make your sport very much a part of your life and and still have that love for it and just um, bring it out in different ways. Uh, I just I think that's so awesome. Um, where can we find and connect with you online? Yeah. So uh, velo-citycycles.com is a great way to kind of see uh, our shop. Velo City Cycles on uh, Instagram and Facebook. We're here in Holland, Michigan. Yeah. You can follow us, chat, whatever. I mean, we're just around having fun on bikes and, um, <laughs> you know, working hard. But yeah, I mean, it's just uh, a lot of fun. It's It's not always always fun, but you make the most of it. So uh, it sounds like you definitely do. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your wisdom and experience, your hard earned wisdom and experience with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests. And it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.